0: Hello, Winnie. Hi, how are you?
1: right. look at that beautiful sweater. You look wonderful today.
0: Thank you very much. Yes, it's a kind of a plum red shining out here Um, over in Manchester. Tell us about you it looks nice lovely clear day behind you have you been out for a walk what's nature saying to you these days
1: it is 7 30 in the morning here in atlanta i have not been out for a walk um but it is cold i think our cold is probably not your cold but it doesn't take much for us to get cold in the south
0: okay you have dogs Have, have they not been out for their exercise yet
1: well this is probably too much information but our dogs have to go to the dentist this morning um, so okay, we're all, got you. yeah. Fine. Very, it's, a, it's a difficult day here in our household. Okay. <laughs> Ezra, what's hey. the news? How are you?
0: Yeah, I am. I'm doing okay. It, we, last week we had. Um, uh, in ministry, there's these times when we're alongside people, and there was a a young man who died in our community. So there was a a large funeral for that. And what was interesting is in my conversation with we call them funeral directors. Is that the same you call them funeral directors? Um, he was speaking to me, and he was saying to me, uh, "Thing is, Father, what you need to know is that it's a Caribbean funeral. This on over the telephone. <laughs> Caribbean people are." typically always late, so it won't start on time, and you just need to know how to manage Caribbean people, Father. And so that, that was a, an interesting thing to begin with in terms of his assumptions of who he was talking to. And so I didn't say anything waiting for the time when we would meet in person. <laughs> and so... <laughs> and how did that go? Fact, yeah. Well, in fact, everybody was early, actually. And <laughs> And he he called me aside to say, as I was saying, Father, it's a Caribbean funeral. And he looked at me and said, actually, I don't know what your roots or background are. Um, You might be familiar with this already. And then uh, we just sort of moved on. (laughs) But there was a a lovely moment of amusement and bewilderment as he realized what he had said, who he had said it to. And I I think that was enough feedback um, that he needed to receive.
1: (laughs) It's a a good save on his part. Wow. (laughs) Woo. Yeah. We, you know, interestingly, and there's been some writing about this. So we've also had a lot of funerals. We had two, we had two deaths two weeks ago, two. And while we were preparing for one funeral, this has happened more than once in this last year, while we're getting ready for one, another death is announced. So we're saying we're a little beleaguered from funeral after funeral after funeral. But in the course of that, I've been reading about there's a, doc, there's a Twitter called the Grady Doctor, um, and it, Grady is our public hospital here in Atlanta, um, and a black woman who's come from California. And she, every, almost every day, does a little Twitter thread of an experience she's had with a patient, um, overwhelmingly African-American. And she's been writing about um, this phenomenon we've been talking about in this country of reverse migration, that people whose families um, migrated out of the South during the Jim Crow um, era because of lynching and violence, hostility, lack of work. To the north, the west, are their children and grandchildren are returning to the south. Um, so I'm not of that. That's not my um, background. Um, but I I'm living in the benefits of the vibrancy of culture as people return to their ancestral homes and as the stories underneath that of why people left are being told. Brian Stevenson has sort of equipped this country to it's kind of given us permission. Um, and it's we'll talk about this with Professor Reddy. It's it's a little bit of what has. Um, not a little bit, it is what has opened up this critique of critical race theory and how we talk about race and who we are, is so that these stories are being told all over the place because people are returning home, which apparently is a phenomenon that's not quite as known in the UK, but it's it's very well known that it's happening here.
0: Thank you, Winnie. Thank you for sharing that. It's, uh, it's a fascinating thing. I'd love to get into that. And you mentioned our guest for today, Professor um, Anthony Reddy, who has written so many books uh, that can fill a library. He has um, been a point of inspiration for me, Winnie, um, over, over the years. In so many ways, he has created communities, cultures and contexts where um, black academics can flourish, can thrive. He's created safe spaces to think outside of the box. And a number of things that I share with people are things which I directly stole from him. Uh, so when I'm talking theologically about scripture, for example, I would say things like the Bible isn't the word of God, it's words about God. And I got that straight from Professor Reddy, you know, and he says things which are pithy, but open up a whole world of understanding. And so he's been a, a mentor and a guide for me, um, across the years, and so it's such absolute pleasure and uh, to introduce him to you. There is so many wonderful things that he's doing. He um, lectures and teaches internationally, and he's at a very prestigious college, Oxford, um, over here in the UK, um, holding his own and and bringing uh, something new into what has been a bastion of elite. English culture uh, with a particular form of whiteness, all on its own, and so uh, it's uh, it's it's incredible to have him here with us, Winnie, today.
1: Professor Reddy, welcome.
2: Hello, it's great to be here, and thank you for the kind words, Azariah. I don't quite recognise myself. I think I'm coming across as a cross between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. So, thank you for the very kind words. I'm sure I don't deserve any of it, but I will take it anyway. Thank you. Take it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so Azariah has a brilliant opening question that we've um, used in this podcast. I'm almost, I'm not going to say it. I'll ask Azariah to do it, um, to begin to root our conversation um, in where where we come from and what we bring um, Azariah.
0: Thank you, Winnie. So you were sharing earlier, Winnie, about people returning south and, and future generations finding home where their parents and grandparents found home. I'd love to ask you, Professor Reddy, how do you describe
2: home? Or what is home for you? Mm. Home? Well, i wishing to sound too academic or pretentious, but I am academic and I can be pretentious. Um, <laughs> it's this tension between Bradford, West Yorkshire, where I was born and brought up. Although I haven't lived there for almost 40 years. I left when I was 18 uh, no, sorry, 19, um, and I'll be 59 this October. So it'll be 40 years this, this October since I left home. But as they often say, you can take the man out of Yorkshire, but you can't take Yorkshire out of the man. So I still talk about it being home, even though I've been away for 40 years. But that's held in tension with the Caribbean, particularly with the island of Jamaica, where my parents came from. My mother died nine years ago. My dad's still alive, still going strong. Um, and I've been to Jamaica lots of times. And every time I go there, I'm reminded of how English I am. So even though I go there and I'm staying in a little village where my mother was from, and that's where all my relatives on my maternal side are buried. So they all come from this little place called Bell Castle. And we have a family plot, and that's where my mum's buried. That's where my grandma father on my mother's side is buried aunts and uncles all the people I remember growing up with in this community in Bradford when they came over as part of the Windrush generation so in a sense it's always interesting going back I was I was there last summer with my dad and as I said I'm always reminded of how English I am Um, and then when I come back to the UK there's always a part of me that wishes I was back in the Caribbean, even though I know I don't really come from there, but it will always be a part of my heart and a part of who I am in terms of my ancestry.
0: And- Thank you guess- so much. Now, I have never visited the continent of Africa, but the audience will to see you've got um, a beautiful cloth behind you. Um, and uh, which looks like it's kind of got some of that tie-dye feeling to it. I wonder, is part of your story, uh, is, is there a connection with the African continent in your story as well?
2: Yes, although not with the cloth. The cloth is actually from Burma or Myanmar. That's a okay. whole other conversation. That's a whole <laughs> other conversation. But in terms of uh, Africa, yeah, um, So interestingly enough, I've been to South Africa more so than I've been to West or Central Africa, which is where my ancestors in terms of people who were taken from the continent as enslaved people came from. And the connection with South Africa really goes back to when I was an undergraduate student in the mid-'80s, And one of the most impactful moments I was doing church history, a degree in church history, reputedly to be doing a degree in church history. I was more familiar with the pub um, and hanging out with friends and I was with the library, which explains which expel- the very modest degree I got um, in the end, but like, we won't talk about that. That's a long time ago. I've improved since then. Um, but in my second year, we had this South African black liberation theologian guy called Etumaleng Masala. and he was in exile and he came to the UK and he was a Marxist And he was, and actually he was the first person I met who said, so just to be clear, I did not invent the, that the Bible's not the word of God, it's a word about God. I stole it from Masala. (laughs) So just to come clean here, so although you've been quoting me for years, actually it comes from Masala. um, And he has a brilliant book called Biblical Hermeneutics and Black Theology in South Africa. And so he was one of the first who said, but. Um, I guess i like, taking a post-colonial kind of critique of the scriptures and saying that if we assign it as a word of God, then it becomes this authorial uh, piece that represents power. And actually, like, the subversive elements in it are the bits that are speaking against the power in terms of the kingly rule. Um, and it's more on the side of the prophets, and it's, and, and it's on the side in, in terms of the dissidents. Um So all that to say that when I met Masala, he planted in me this notion that I wanted to go to South Africa once apartheid was ended. I wanted to go and see where he came from, see his influences. And so that's where the relationship started. And and I have this wonderful title that I rarely use because it is a bit embarrassing, um, although fabulous. So I'm a Professor Extraordinarius. I'll say that again, a professor extraordinarius with the University of South Africa. Um, And and that link comes through Masala.
1: So, and you must get this question all the time from Indians. Indians are always trying to figure out where people are from, right? Um, And Reddy sounds like a South Indian name to me. Is that, but Jamaicans are also so creative that it doesn't necessarily mean that, right? I don't,
2: yeah. It doesn't. Although, interesting enough, um, as I was growing up, Winnie, the only people called Reddy who were not in my family were Indians, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so there was always some interesting conversations with some of my Indian friends who were sort of saying, well, well like, you don't look Indian. But on the other hand, like you got an Indian name. So did somebody know somebody at some point in the past? And is there something about your family you don't know about? And I was oh, I don't know. But actually, Reddit R-E-D-D-I-E, is actually a Scottish name yeah. and comes from the west coast of Scotland. And so about 300 odd years ago, when the Scots, that when many of them were deported from Scotland, having sort of tried to rise up and to fight the English and lost about, uh, about 1745, a number of them then got deported to the so-called New World of the Caribbean. And as I say in my classes, they left as colonial subjects arrived in the caribbean and discovered that they were white and then took part in plantation slavery and then they owned as much as you can own another human being in terms of chattel slaves and so reddy is, is probably named after someone who owned one of my descendants years ago i remember working with my first dalit students so so-called untouchable and reddy is a high caste name in india yeah. And so oftentimes, certainly if you're a Dalit, that name often represents someone who comes from a status within the caste system within India, although it's supposed to be illegal, but it st- still goes on, or someone who oppresses you. And I remember being introduced to this particular student who eyed me warily in our first meeting. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I mean, I've mean, i been looking forward to meeting you. I've heard a lot about you. I'm a black liberation theologian. I'm on your side But this guy's, he's giving me the eyes, you know? I mean, he is looking at me with these piercing, I don't trust you, what am I doing in your office looking eyes? And I'm thinking, like, we've just met, why don't you like me? And so at the end, as we're leaving, he says, oh, um, Doc, I just got to ask you, where are you from? Are you from India? And I said, no, I'm from the Caribbean. And he says, "Uh, and your name, does it come from India? I said, nope, it's from Scotland. And he says okay let me just ask you bluntly are you part of the caste system i said no i'm not he says oh okay that's all right okay okay so we can be friends then so and i suddenly realized what was going on he thought i was someone who was there to oppress him so i said "Nope, i can honestly tell you as far as i can tell unless someone in my family is not telling me the whole truth that our family comes from the caribbean and our name comes from scotland not from south india
1: that's Fantastic, and you you just introduced the idea of of becoming white of of recogni- of becoming white in the process of migration and colonialism. Um, we in this country are having a blowout time around critical race theory, especially in the part of the country I live in, being made illegal. Um, and what that means is basically any conversation about whiteness and race, period, has become illegal in teaching in um, in schools, and illegal like. People will go to jail um, in protest. Um, the power of naming um, how race has been defined and works, um, I think, has been made manifest in our country. The enormous power of it, because it's being made illegal. Um, you're a part of the conversation in a, in a different context, and what I, I will—I don't understand. You and Ezra are having a different conversation. Um, I'd love to hear about um, what it what it means to talk about whiteness in your context and what um what your experience has been of, as a scholar in, in i think of uh james cohen kelly brown douglas in our tradition talking about that as the american descendants of enslaved people um in this country but it's i think it's quite different in your context
2: yeah i mean i think there are great many similarities but there are some critical and crucial differences i think the key difference for me in my context is that as a descendant of enslaved Africans, that's the thing I would share, obviously, with Caliban, Douglas, and James Cohn, is that is that, fam- is that my family lineage is in, is ensconced within the British Empire, and so the British Empire, the largest empire the world's ever seen, so at its peak, twenty four percent, so pretty much a quarter of the world, is controlled by a country that's only forty four thousand square miles big. I mean, you know, I mean, Texas is bigger than, Britain. and my parents probably really like Azariah's parents, actually migrated to Britain. So they came back to the so-called mother country. So the country from which British missionary expansionism had gone to the Caribbean and to the Americas, but certainly the Caribbean um, and and made people British subjects. So when they came to Britain, although we use the language of them being migrants, actually what they were were British subjects coming home there were people with the blue passport who'd been made part of the empire and told that they belonged. And so naturally they were coming back to a country that had, uh, in effect, helped to shape their identity. And coming back, but not being wanted. So there was a labour shortage. So they invited my parents' generation to come, but having invited them, they didn't particularly want them. And so that element of systemic racism has been played out really from the second half of the 20th century onwards, and that has been what has shaped a lot of my writing, both the ancestral element of slavery and colonialism, and then the neo-colonialism within in the British nation. And I think finally this desire not to want to talk about empire so we have almost like this um agreed silence that like we won't talk about it or if we do we use these very strange euphemisms for how benign and good it was i mean so for example you know i mean the other day i was talking to a white academic who um so given your family links to india winnie said and i quote well you know i mean the empire wasn't that bad we gave india railways right oh see well that's all right then okay so you gave them railways but actually three years of exploitation stealing their resources stealing their land uh, inculcating them with white supremacy is to be balanced alongside good communication links oh right, okay that's and that was a i mean that was a serious intellectual argument this person was making and so i think One of the interesting tensions we have now post the murder of George Floyd is that we're finally now beginning to talk about those things that we've not wanted to talk about for a long time. So even as I introduce myself as Anthony Reddy and I say, I'm the descendant of enslaved Africans and Reddy is a slave name, that itself tells you something about the relationship of this place to places several thousand miles away and to black bodies and to subjugation.
0: Um, So, uh, one of the things that you've mentioned, you mentioned in terms of one of uh, your inspirations, uh, being a Marxist. You know, when I think about the gospel, when I think about some of the Christian contexts I find myself in, there seems to be a capitalist undercurrent. So it's about growth and expansion, almost, you know, um, at any cost. And I'm curious, you know, some people, when I speak about race, they will say, actually, it's not about race, it's about it's about class you know, and they try to use class to cancel out the race conversation. But you connect those things. So I guess a couple of things are coming to mind. One is, you know, it, can Christianity and capitalism um, be compatible? And how can an analysis of race and class help us to understand the gospel better?
2: Yeah. So I'll take the first word first because I think that's easiest. Yeah. If I'm being honest with you, No. It should not be compatible, but I think it has become so because of how empire has embedded itself into Christianity. So much so that I think what it has done is effectively changed the is to change the meaning of Christianity. So I think what we now practice and what we inhabit across the world is very different from the religion. Was based upon Jesus of Nazareth, fundamentally different. And I and I think that's because Christianity and empire have become so conjoined. And so even our even our missional language around growth and around trying to expand the faith goes hand in hand with capitalism. And if we're honest, goes hand in hand with exploitation. And Christianity, therefore, at its worst, has been part of the exploitative framework whereby. And we still do that now. Is the way we like we talk about church in terms of bums on seats? You know, I mean, we don't talk about faithfulness to the gospel. We don't talk about ethics. We don't talk about the real things that matter. We still think in terms of the shaping of capitalism. So, in my own church, we are now probably about a fifth the size that we were, let's say, a hundred years ago. And you still get people saying, "Oh." Um, it's a shame that we can't go back to the days when our churches were full. But let's think about what the churches were like when they were full. So for a start, all three of us here would not be in ministry because like, there's no way that black and brown people would be allowed to be in responsible and representative positions. We know that uh, the LGBTQ people, a conversation still ongoing and needs resolving, but quite frankly... You would have to be in the closet or she'd be op- openly persecuted. We know there was classism. we know there was all kinds of isms embedded by empire. And yet we still think that we want to go back to those days because our church was full. It was full, but it was repressive. So I'm one of these people who thinks our churches may be smaller, but they're more faithful to the essence of the gospel that is about love of neighbor and seeking fulfillment not in yourself as an atomized um, individualistic entity but in community with others particularly those who are the least of these and those on the margins. Therefore I think that intersectionality um, that I think um, Kimberly Crenshaw a black African American woman who invented the term I mean, you know, I mean, she was a genius because I think what she was able to do, like all the cleverest people, is to take what seems self-evidently obvious, but give it a name and give it a concept. And now all of us look back and think, but but of course it's obvious. But it's only obvious when someone has said it. And so I think her ability to see these intersectionalities and to say, actually, what tends to happen is that like there's always what some of my friends call, calls it, what about me.'" So you know, it's like you said something. I was upset. Oh yeah, but what about? And uh, and as you said, as a right, it's an attempt to deflect. It's an attempt to move away from a discomfort by deflecting it and pointing to something else. But actually, that's a false narrative because these things are interconnected. They're about power. They're about what is perceived as being normative, what is normal, and who is impacted by certain. Cultural, political, procedural, um, systemic ways of thinking about what it is to be human and how our relationships are made around issues of power. And so I try in my work to say if we understand, if we understood the links between race and class, what we see is that white working class people are as racialized as black and brown people are, but obviously in different ways part of the cult of whiteness is that they believe themselves to be better and privileged. When actually, when you look at how the systems, particularly around capitalism are arranged, they are impacted negatively alongside people from global majority heritage communities, but they don't recognize it because of the false consciousness of whiteness and white privilege.
1: I have a church question though, just so, so yes. And I want to ask you a question about this. I, um, I, so the readings in the uh, for Sundays, the last couple of weeks in the revised common lectionary are, are Paul, right? Proclaiming Christ crucified, not Jesus crucified, Christ crucified. I, I am enough of a believer that I actually think that's a very compelling message and should be compelling and is compelling if it is told truthfully to exactly the groups of people that we're describing is that would not have were not welcome in the church when the church was at its last point of of you know what, what we say were the glory days, which looking back technically were often not right there weren't many people actually going to church back then either, even if they were on the membership rolls, which were hugely inflated by how we counted who weren't to church mm-hmm. right but I'm in the American South in a big church, and i I'm realizing I believe that if we are faithful to the message of Christ crucified this place will flourish. No doubt in my mind that it is magnetic. Um, how do you balance that? Because you're a churchgoer too. And because I, my guess is that we all believe that, but there also is a valid and important critique of how church has been in the past and the, the economic systems and social systems we live within that prioritize certain ways of being. So how, how, do, we, how do we maintain our cri- critique of that, um, but also remain faithful to the the impulse and I think magnetism of the gospel
2: yeah yeah I mean I think for me and this is the interesting aside when we talk about critical race theory um I mean not that I have a problem with it but I I always find it amusing when people say well your writing and Cohn's writing is it's just critical race theory Cohn never mentions critical race theory once Neither do I,
0: Professor. Ready, do you- I wonder if I could just interrupt for um, some of us. Critical race theory and like intersectionality—they're terms that um, some of us might not be as familiar with. I wonder if you could just give a, a quick, yeah, a, a quick description of what those terms mean. <laughs>
2: Yes, yeah, so intersectionality, very quickly then, is the belief that there's no one single driver for oppression. It's that all the isms are linked. So, whether it's classism, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's sexuality, there is a connection in terms of how power operates. And so, rather than just see oppression in a single trajectory oh, it's all about race, or oh, it's all about gender, or it's that it's, 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 these things are linked. Critical race theory really uh, initially comes out of legal studies and it's this belief that essentially racism is embedded within systems in an all-enveloping way. So what you have to do is to look critically at how the systems operate um, and to understand that it's not just a subjective in terms of Thing, what people behave, but it's also objective in terms of what the underlying frameworks that govern how societies operate, how truth is made, how policies are made. So, in a sense, it's a very um, all encompassing theory for understanding the embeddedness of kind of race in society. Now, all that to say that as important as they are as tools, important as Marxism is as a tool fundamentally, fundamentally, all theologies of liberation, certainly black liberation theology, has its roots in the gospel. And it has its roots in exactly what you've just said, Winnie, about Christ crucified. So what we see exemplified in Jesus is a way of being that I think two things are key here. Firstly, he's in solidarity with all those who are crucified, all those who are told that they don't matter, all those who are on the wrong end of imperial power. And Jesus therefore goes to the cross in solidarity with all those who have been brutalized. And resurrection says that evil never has the last word, that the last word is God's word and God's word is resurrection and its life. Now, if we understood it in those terms, what we would see is that the church should naturally always be on the side of the underdog. The church should always be naturally on the side of that which is speaking truth to power, particularly power that is represented by top-down forms of imposition, whether it's capitalism, whether it's colonialism, whether it's imperialism, whichever ism it is that is forcing people to be less than, forcing people to be, um, in some cases, to be subhuman or to be identified as problematic, then that's where Christ is. And you're absolutely right. If we if we preach that and if we lived it out, I think all the people who think church is irrelevant or think church has has been dangerous, it's on the wrong side of history, they would flock into the church because what they would see are allies and people who would help them to feel that they are human beings and they matter. But our problem is that we become so many of our churches become so ensconced in the status quo that, like, there's this great quote from Malcolm X who says that one of the problems with how the media operates is that it teaches you to hate the people you should like mm. and teaches you, like, to support the people that you should be opposing. Okay. Um, and that is what, is what happens in so many of our churches. There's a great quote, um, I can't remember the source of it, but I heard it through a friend of mine called Miguel de la Toro who is a social ethicist who works at Eilip. And and, and he says, in many of our societies, we praise upwards, but blame downwards. We praise upwards and we blame downwards. And the scandal of our church is whether it's through Trumpism on the one hand in your context, Winnie, or whether it's Brexit in our context, is where our church then joins in on the blaming downwards. We blame the people at the bottom and it's their fault. And actually, if we understood the nature of the cross, it's God's identification with those people who are blamed and scapegoated. And Jesus himself becomes a scapegoat, takes on the identity of a slave, takes on the identity of someone who is forlorn and marginalized and despised in order to reconcile us with God. That's the good news of the gospel.
1: Professor Reddy, I see why Azariah quotes you all the time. I I will, too. (laughs) Um, so so to me, what you've just described though, is this scandal of, I completely agree with you of, of what's happening in your, in the church of England right now around, um, LGBT people that this, the, the preservation of the institution on the, you know, and then it is so dangerous to the proclamation of the gospel that how is, how is there an institution without the proclamation of the gospel? I think you get exactly this, this false, this kind of these false choices, right? Um, I don't know, Azariah, what do you think of that?
0: Yeah, so I, one of the things that with Professor Reddy is that he um, he sits in different spaces, and I'm curious about how he um, not just speaks with power, but speaks truth to power. I'm looking for inspiration for myself as well. You know, when things come up where people need to be challenged, I'm wondering how you discern how to do that. So. That, one of the areas that Professor Reddy is, is sitting on as part of is um, the Church of England has got a, a racial justice committee um, chaired by a guy called Lord Paul Buteng, um, post-George Floyd and um, post the Windrush scandal that had happened in the UK where people who had travelled from Caribbean islands who were British citizens were being deported back home uh, as if their existence didn't matter. And so the church began a process a few years ago, which is now coming to formation. And Professor Reddy sits on that committee. And then, you know, he's sitting in the halls in Oxford as well. And it'd be very easy to be cowed, I think. How do you keep your prophetic edge? Um, How do we continue to speak truth to
2: power? Um, Thank you. I have tried to do that. How successful I've been, that's for others to say. I would probably say there's a couple of things, really. First is and you will have heard me say this before, that my ultimate inspiration has always been my mother. She was the touchstone in terms of the way to live out your Christian faith with integrity. She remains my greatest hero, even though she died nine years ago this month. And one of her great phrases was, she would always say that she would say, the truth may cause offence, but the truth is never a sin. The truth may cause offence, but it is never a sin. And so she brought myself and my three other siblings up to say, tell the truth, just tell the truth, say with humility, try not to get too angry, try not to get too shouty or too self-righteous, but tell the truth. And then I think alongside that is then I think all of us need communities of accountability. I think all of us need people around us who love us enough to tell us when they see that we are not being truthful, either to ourselves, or truthful in our engagement with others. Um, and that second bit is important because, again, and I'm not sure the derivation of this, but this is not something I made up myself, so let me just be clear. If the devil came to us, however we thought about the devil, um, in a pointy hat, and wearing loud clothes with a little stick and said, oh, hi, I'm the devil, I've come to tempt you. All of us would see the devil think, aha, I see you, I name you, I'm not going anywhere near you. But of course, that's not how it works. It works by increments, and it works on the basis of two key things. One is, I think it's a fundamental danger of always wanting to be liked. I learned that very early on, particularly in terms of of encountering my hero, James Cone. James Cone always demanded that people respect him, but didn't give a damn whether they liked him or not. And so much of our Christian work and our life is predicated upon wanting to be liked and not wanting to cause offense. And therefore wanting to be liked and not wanting to cause offense often makes us not speak up. It makes us want to be part of the gang. So all of us naturally, if we're honest, particularly if you're in a place of privilege, there's something about wanting to be brought in and be liked and have your tummy tickled, you know, and people say nice things about you. That is part of our human condition, but really that's where the slippery slope happens. As I said, not that the devil turns up in the obvious clothes. It turns up in the flattery. It turns up in people saying wonderful, nice things about you. Um, And one of the things I've learned is, and certainly I don't want to be too personal, but... I'm always cautious when the people who I think should dislike me tell me how wonderful I am. So at which point I think to myself, either you're being dishonest or I'm not doing my job right because you shouldn't really like me, really, in terms of what I'm saying and what I'm doing. You know, well, I mean, Jesus didn't go to the cross because everybody loved him. It's because he told the truth.
1: Well, Professor Reddy, this is where I hear you about about a very strong critique of caste, but this is where I wonder if you're an Indian, because that's how I was raised as well. People say nice things about you, you better watch out. And that's how the evil gets in, the vanity gets yep. in. So I, I love that answer. You know, speaking of Dr. Cohn's, so I went to Union, um, and I just, you know, to be truthful, I'm a trustee at Union now, love Union Seminary. And Dr. Cohn taught theology when I was there, which was just, I mean, we were unworthy. It was wonderful. And he he used to say to those of us, um, for generations that wanted to be in the church, that our, our plan was ministry, not doctoral work. he so you would look at us a little askance and um, like we we're a little foolish and say, where do you really think you're going to get with this message in the church? My experience, his experience was the church didn't want to hear it, any church, regardless of the way the church was structured. So I'm curious about your experience of, because to my mind, the academy wasn't wasn't actually very open to hearing it in a way that I thought the church might be open to change of heart or that's part of our work. But what, what is your, what's your experience been of church versus the academy or the other way around?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. So for many years I had a foot in both camps. So I worked at a theological college, what you would call a seminary yeah. and, and I was a research fellow then I was funded by the Methodist church, having brought up in the Methodist tradition And I worked there, yes, I was doing research in black theology, but also being a consultant to the church. So the idea was that I would feed my work into the church and to help it in its ongoing mission and ministry. And the truth is that they tolerated me for a while and then they threw me out. So they got rid of my job, they cut the job and they kicked me out. And I was unemployed for a few years. So one of the things I found, uh, if I'm honest with you, is that the academy and the church are as bad as each other in the UK. (laughs) They're both infected by white supremacy. They're both um, um, overlaid by white norms. And I think the significant difference thus far, whether it will last, we will see, has come really post the murder of George Floyd. And I think that has suddenly now opened up a more critical engagement with the kind of work I do. So what I often say to people like Azariah and my other friends is that it feels like I worked for 20-odd years to become an overnight success. All of a sudden now, I'm Flavor of the Month, all of a sudden now that the great and the good want to engage with my work and people are reading things that I wrote 20-odd years ago that died a death when it first came out. So I'm pleased about it. I mean, how well it will last, I'm not sure. But certainly I've had more constructive conversations about race and white supremacy in the last two years than I had in the previous 20 years. Gosh. But I yeah. think I'm always reminded by, again, I think one of my friends who said that we like our prophets dead and long in the past so, so that we can talk about them in hindsight and then lie about how much like we loved them when they were around. Um, And I think the church has always made a choice to have those who are more likely to speak nice to power and to cajole it and to ameliorate with it, rather than those who are are willing to speak truth to it.
0: So, Professor Reddy, as we uh, draw this to a close, I'm thinking about the many who will be listening who are in that same position. They are seeking to speak truth to power. They maybe are in contexts where it's uncomfortable. Uh, what do you do to renew yourself? How do you pace yourself over these decades? Um, uh, what do you do? How do you take time out? How, how do you fill yeah. up your tank um, and look after yourself? You know, and what advice can you yeah. pass on? Uh, just, just a couple of, of thoughts. Yeah.
2: Sure, yeah. Well, I think firstly, I think community, you know, um, that Jesus traveled with his, to- his, his disciples, 12 or how many they are, have critical friends, people who will support you, love you. How are you? Find a spirituality that gives you energy. Um, I still go to church. For all its faults, church is still the place where I can find myself amongst others and in the singing of the hymns and in the corporateness of worship, it renews me, it gives me a sense of strength. And then finally, and it's a cliche, but I think it's important to say this, that to realize that we are participating in God's work. Ultimately, it's God that will bring about justice. It's God that will change. I'm simply doing my little bit to be a part of that. So I don't have any sense of my own importance that that I'm not gonna bring in the kingdom. That's what God's gonna do. Um, uh, um, And therefore I take the work seriously, but I try not to take myself too seriously.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much, Professor Reddy. It's been great to have this conversation with you.
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you. It's been a real joy to share with both of you.
0: Thank you. Friends, that was the last Grace podcast. Winnie, Rosie, and I have loved this Grace conversation. Conversations about God and race with such a wonderful range of guests bringing such rich and fantastic perspectives. So the conversations on grace have come to an end, but it's not the end of the conversation. Take the conversations into your different worlds, into the context, communities and places where you can also continue the conversation on God and race. Grace. Grace to you. No. So...